Hi, I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And I'm Norman Mitchell, and we're the hosts of Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we discuss, appreciate, and delve too deep into the Lord of the Rings Extended Editions, one minute at a time. You know there's a Balrog down there, right? It'll be fine. (laughs) Have you ever wondered about Hobbit economy or how wizards get their mail? Are you also in awe of Hugo Weaving's eyebrows? Then join us every Monday through Friday on our mission, quest, thing, only on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dueling Genre Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners were already on to what we were talking about as we ran through that list of characters. <laughs> Probably. Uh, so Todd, final countdown. I don't even know, what, like five left after this or so. Uh, Line the Witch of the Wardrobe. You pulled it into one of our last novel discussions. I think it's our last novel we're going to cover with you as a regular co-host. So why the Line the the Witch and the Wardrobe? Um, I love this novel. I've loved it ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I've read it. I, I don't read it every year, but I've read it several times. I'm sure, and um. I, I just, I think, I feel like maybe on our hundred hundredth episode or 150th episode, I said, I can't believe we haven't done the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe yet. And as I was thinking about finishing out this run, I thought I cannot leave this podcast without talking about this one of my most favorite novels. So here we are. It is a good one. Um, I haven't read it probably as often as you. I know I've read it probably twice the entire Chronicles of Narnia all the way through. I remember my first exposure to the series was the BBC uh, adaptation with um, the actors who were playing the beavers and everything. Do you, have you ever seen that one? I think I, I think I've seen parts of that one. The one that I grew up with was a cartoon version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like, as I was watching, I, I, and then we've seen the, the, the new version a, a lot. We own that and we watch it like, at least once a month, probably in our house. Um, and, but the images that I had in my head as I was reading this were from this little cartoon that, uh, that I watched as a kid. And I'm it's just going to Melendez uh, cartoon. He was the peanuts director for most of the early peanut specials. It's so well done. I really liked it a lot. Um, is it this, is it the 1979? I would guess it's the Bill Melendez. Yeah. I mean, again, he, he was most famous for all his work on the early. No, that's not the one. Oh, well, there was an earlier one, but it says there's no, like there's no copies of the earlier one. So I'm not sure why (laughs) what you're talking about. Um, let's see. Yeah. The Bill Melendez one was in 1979. There was a 10 part version in the sixties. That was no. done, but that's the one that I looked at and it said, "There's no way to get your hands on this one right now." Yeah, it was not. Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, I bet it was this one. It just looks a little bit different, but it it's it has to be. 
it was the 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 cover of the like the movie poster doesn't look exactly as it does in my mind but right <laughs> uh but it has to have been that one anyway it, it's really it just basically follows like word for word uh the novel it's extremely close <laughs> stays very close to the text um but i i really liked it and uh and i love the new one also i think they're both really well done yeah, there's been a, a lot of adaptations. I will touch on that when we get down to the trivia in just a moment. Uh, but before we do that, we should mention that uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is part of a seven-novel series called The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, as we noted. And The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was published in 1950, and it tells the story of two brothers and, uh, well, four siblings, two brothers, two sisters, who... Uh, discover a magical entrance through the back of a wardrobe that leads them into a, a world called Narnia, where they have an adventure, and there may be some religious overtones to their adventure, if you squint. Um, <laughs> if you squint. Just, or if you just read it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't really have to squint <laughs> for those. Not really. So, now, the trivia. Um, as I just said, there are seven books. Those seven books were published between 1950 and 1956. Um, he actually finished the his his draft of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and had written the next, I think it was the next three books in the series before that one even got published. Um, he just really liked the world uh, um, as he discovered it. And uh, in doing some, some research, I knew this was controversial, but in poking around, it looks like if you want to start a fight on the internet, you can just state your preference for publication order or chronological order for, <laughs> for Chronicles of Narnia, and some people are going to come at you with some strong opinions. So the original publication order was uh, of these seven titles, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Silver Chair, The Horse and the Boy, The Magician's Nephew, and The Last Battle. But the chronological order of the series would be the Magician's Nephew, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Horse and His Boy, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Silver Chair, and The Last Battle. So if you're just going to take the numbers of the uh, publication order and then actually try and do it in chronological order, that'd be 6152347. So uh, <laughs> he, he played around a lot with when he was telling the stories. It was more he built this world and then he just thought of stories that could take place in the world. Um, and mm-hmm. you know the the mythologies all combine and connect in in good ways, but it definitely, uh, it, like I said, there people have strong opinions on how you should introduce this to children and how the order of the books should be read. Do you um, have a strong opinion on this? I don't. I've I read them <laughs> in uh, publication order. I think uh, I don't think I've ever read them in the chronological order. Um, like I said, I, I think I've read the whole series twice. I think both times it was just publication order. Yeah, I think I've always read them in publication order also. So I guess I have an opinion. Just, I I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you want to read them in whatever order you want, go ahead. Um, <laughs> uh, the series is C.S. Lewis's most popular, and it is what he's most identified with. It has sold over 100 million copies. Um, so, well done. And Narnia was named after a small town in Italy named Narni, N-A-R-N-I. Lewis was flipping through an atlas and spotted that name, and he liked the sound of it, and he underlined it. So there's an atlas where he underlined Narni <laughs> in Italy. And I guess that's what you do when there's no Netflix. You just pull an atlas off the shelf and start <laughs> perusing. Maybe you'll find inspiration for uh, an entire uh, mythical world that will be beloved by generations of readers. Um, also with the inspiration for the story, when he was a teenager, Lewis saw a painting of a fawn carrying parcels and he said the image always stuck in his mind. And in his forties, he thought 
maybe there's a story there. Um, the series has been translated into 47 languages, and we've already touched on some of the adaptations. It has been adapted a lot. There was a 1967 TV adaptation that you can't seem to get your hands on right now. A 1979 animated TV special, um, which is the one I think you were talking about, Todd. Yeah. A 1988 BBC live action adaptation that um, it actually went for a couple of years and was like telling different chapters uh, in different different episodes. There was uh, there's been quite a few radio productions. So besides audiobooks, of which there are several audiobook adaptations as well, but there was a 1981 radio production. There was um, a radio dramatization uh, that was produced between the 88 and 97. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a long time. I don't know yeah. how frequently those chapters were being released at that point. Uh, between 1999 and 2002, Focus on the Family did a massive adaptation with, I think it was a cast of over 100 and a full orchestral score that was commissioned just for that. Huh. Um, and the most famous adaptation for modern, uh, you know, modern audience audiences would be the 2005 big screen adaptation by Walden Media and Disney. Uh, they did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then Walden Media and Disney again did Prince Caspian in 2008. But then Disney pulled out of financing the third film in the series. But 20th Century Fox stepped in to make The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in 2010. So Disney's going to own that one real soon. Everything <laughs> <laughs> goes back to Disney in the end. Um, I really wish they would finish. That what on Wikipedia it says the silver chair is in pre-production. So really, I, yeah, but I don't know. That would be Walden. I don't know who's co-financing it, especially with Disney buying 20th Century Fox. Who would be at this point? I would love to see them finish it, finish the series. Yeah, uh, well, they they were making pretty good money on all of them. I don't think any of them lost money, so yeah. I think there'd be an audience for it. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was included on uh, Time Magazine to the list. I found this trivia and I stopped looking into it. I'm just going to say what it is. Time Magazine in 2005 released a list of the 100 best novels published between 1923 and 2005. <laughs> I don't know why 1923 was their starting point. That was the list. Uh, I wonder if somebody like had something against a novel that was published in 1922. And they're like, no, we're not including that one on our list. We'll just start at 1923. I'm sure if I looked into it, I could find the answer to this question. I kind of don't want to know. I just want it to be the list of best novels from 1923 to 2005. Uh, that that list, though, they weren't like ranking them. They just said, here are the 100 best. And it was in there. But then I know we've mentioned this before. BBC did in 2003 something called The Big Read in which they pulled a massive number of citizens in the United Kingdom to try and determine the best-loved books of the United Kingdom. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came in at number nine on the list. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, number one was taken by C.S. Lewis's good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, with The Lord of the Rings was the number one spot. Within the series, you may notice some allusions to religion and mythology. Um, the Christ allegory is quite apparent as you'll hear in Todd's summary, but there are also references to Norse mythology and some Hans Christian Andersen uh, fairy tales and some German fairy tales. Like there's a lot there besides just the Christian mythology, but that one is so uh, dominant in our cultural understanding of the text. It's kind of the only one that we talk about. And Lewis has said though, that he did not view this as a Christian allegory. He called it a Christian supposal. I don't know what the word supposal is. It was in quotation marks in the quote, because apparently no one else is like, what? what does he mean here? And he said, suppose there was another world that needed redemption the way ours needed Christian redemption. What might that look like? Huh. Um, so he's supposing what, uh, what another kind of uh, Christian redemption story could look like. And just, just so happens, it looks a lot like 
a Christian allegory. <laughs> An awful lot like a Christian allegory. So that's my trivia. Uh, Todd, do you have any uh, trivia about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe floating around in your head? Um, I don't know if this falls in the category of trivia, but I, I think... Um, so we've talked about Neil Gaiman several times on this episode, and uh, to hear Neil Gaiman talk about C.S. Lewis... On this podcast, you mean. On the, what did I say? On this episode. On the yeah on the on the on the podcast, and um, he says that when when he was little he really liked uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and then he realized that it was all this Christian stuff, and so then he hated it because he was like that's dumb, and then and then later in life he reluctantly came back to it and said okay this is just super good fantasy I can't hate this thing and now. Uh, it's uh, once again uh, like a big influence in his writing and um, I think it says something uh, interesting about the Chronicles of Narnia and this novel especially just um, it's a powerful story (laughs) and it resonates uh, in ways that go far beyond the the Christian imagery although the Christian imagery is um, is certainly important it's not the only reason why this is a really great book that was a discussion topic I wanted us to touch on at the end. Oh, was it? <laughs> How well does it hold up separate from the Christian allegory, like just as a fantasy story yeah. without everything that we relate with it. But we can just put a pin in that and we'll come back around. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, before Todd gives us uh, his uh, his last summary that he'll be reading on the protagonist podcast as a regular co-host, uh, we want to thank uh, you listeners for joining us and for listening to this episode. And we would especially like to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to uh, support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick cast, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about uh, newly released films uh, or TV shows that we've been watching that uh, we're not going to have a chance to talk about on this, most likely. And we also give monthly updates on our, on our fantasy box office where you can hear me just expressing utter frustration on the turn this <laughs> this has taken <laughs> you would think a billion it's gonna, dollar the lead pendulum is gonna swing back your way i had a billion dollar lead at one point <laughs> and, and it's just gone uh all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and now todd do you have a summary of the lion the witch in the wardrobe for us i do here it goes um the ch- I, I've gone through this chapter by chapter, so and it's pretty quick and it's very straightforward. So chapter one is called Lucy Looks Into a Wardrobe. The Pevensey siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, all leave London during the school holiday to live with an old professor in the country. Peter is excited at the size of the house and the freedom the children seem to enjoy there. He decides to go exploring. While wandering around the house, the children come across a spare room with only a wardrobe against one wall. The older children leave, but Lucy decides to stick around and have a look. She opens the wardrobe, then steps into it and feels for the back, but there is another row of coats, and then she feels tree branches, and suddenly she falls right out the back of the wardrobe and into a snowy forest, where she meets a fawn. Chapter 2, What Lucy Found There Uh, The fawn introduces himself as Tumnus, and seems very interested in Lucy's being human. He invites her to his home for tea and toast and cakes, and Lucy accepts, saying she can just stay a few minutes. Now, I just have to say right here, um, I would be very disappointed in Lucy if I were her father. <laughs> Do you have to have a conversation with your kids when you come to this point? Kids? I really, I mean, <laughs> this is just such poor judgment on her part. Um, 
they eat and he plays a tune for her and she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, he tells her that he has been kidnapping her because the white witch who rules this land called Narnia uh, told him to kidnap any human he ever came across. But he decides not to kidnap Lucy and he helps her back to the wardrobe instead. Chapter three is called Edmund and the Wardrobe. Uh, Lucy tells the others about her adventure, but they don't believe her. She shows them the wardrobe, but it's uh, no longer a door to Narnia. It's just a there's just a wood uh, back of the of the wardrobe. So they're kind of mean to her, especially Edmund. And then a few days later, they're playing hide and seek when Lucy goes back to the spare room just to have a quick look. Then Edmund comes in behind and he jumps into the wardrobe so he can scare her. So he sees her go in the wardrobe and then he jumps in. Uh, but she isn't there. And he pushes through and finds himself in the snowy wood in Narnia. Edmund yells for Lucy, but she doesn't show up. Just then a sled with reindeer shows up. It's uh, driven by a dwarf and has a white queen in it. And she asks Edmund who he is. Chapter four, Turkish Delight. The angry queen becomes very nice when she sees that Edmund is human. She gives him a hot drink and treats to eat and tells him to go back and get his brother and sisters and bring them to her. And he agrees. Uh, she leaves. Then Lucy arrives and tells Edmund that she has been to see Mr. Tumnus, the fawn. And Edmund is sulky because Lucy was right and he wants more treats. And Lucy is happy to have Edmund's testimony to back her up. And then they go back through the wardrobe. Chapter five, back on the side of the door. Edmund tells Peter and Susan that he and Lucy had only been pretending. Edmund is a real jerk. Uh, Lucy is super sad, and Peter and Susan are worried, so they go and talk to the professor, who confirms that Lucy is the more truthful of the two, and that perhaps Lucy is telling the truth, and they should mind their own business. Then, sometime later, the kids are playing uh, around in the house when Mrs. McCready, the housekeeper, comes up the stairs with a group of tourists, and the kids are afraid of the McCready, and so they hide in the wardrobe. Chapter 6, Into the Forest. This time, the back of the wardrobe is open, and the kids all end up in Narnia. They take coats and go exploring. Edmund accidentally admits that he has been there before, but says nothing of the White Witch. Lucy takes them to see Tumnus, but his house has been smashed up, and he has been arrested. And then a robin starts to lead them somewhere. Chapter 7, A Day with the Beavers. The robin leads them to a beaver, who is very nice, and leads them to his dam, where Mrs. Beaver makes a delicious meal. Uh, chapter 8, What Happened After Dinner. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the kids that the queen has cast a spell over Narnia, which makes it always winter and never Christmas. Then they tell them of a prophecy that Aslan, a great lion and king of the wood, has returned from a long absence, and that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve join him in a place called Care Paravel, then the witch's power will be lost. Then they realize that Edmund has left. Mr. Beaver supposes, uh, correctly, that he has gone to the witch's palace, and they all leave in haste for a place called the Stone Table, where Aslan is waiting. Chapter 9, In the Witch's House. Edmund walks to the witch's house. He's mad at Peter. He gets there and sees a bunch of stone statues of creatures. And then he meets the witch and tells her what he saw. She is mad. He is alone and mad that the beavers say Aslan is back. And they get her sleigh and they head out to chase after the others. Chapter 10, the spell begins to break. They all hide in a cave. Uh, then Father Christmas shows up and gives. So this they is uh, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and the beavers. Uh, they all hide in a cave, and then Father Christmas shows up and gives them presents, uh, a sword and shield for Peter, a bow and arrows, and a horn for Susan, and a dagger and a healing potion for Lucy. And it looks like the witch's spell is beginning to break. Chapter 11, Aslan is nearer. Edmund and the queen and her dwarf race across the countryside, trying to overtake the beavers and Edmund's siblings, but the snow eventually all thaws, and the, the sleigh gets stuck in rocks and mud, and they're forced to walk. Chapter 12, Peter's first battle. The kids and the beavers finally make it to the stone table where Aslan and the good Narnian creatures are gathered. Aslan shows Peter where he and his brothers and sisters will be kings and queens at a castle far off on the seashore. Then Susan's horn blows and they run to help her. 
uh, wolves in the service of the White Witch have attacked, and Peter kills one, and the wolves are defeated, but one of them uh, gets away. Chapter 13, Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time. Uh, the wolf that got away tracks down the witch who is just about to kill Edmund. And then um, he tells her what's going on. And then the, a bunch of good animals come and they save Edmund and they take him back to the stone table. And Aslan talks to him for a bit and he is forgiven. Then the queen comes wanting to speak with Aslan. She says she has a right to Edmund's blood because he was a traitor. And Aslan talks to her in private and she renounces her claim. Chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch. After talking to the witch, Aslan orders everyone to move the camp away from the stone table. He seems sad. That night, Susan and Lucy can't sleep. They're worried about Aslan. So they go out of their tent and see him walking into the woods. They follow him. He sees them. Uh, they walk together for a bit, and then he tells them they can go no further with him, and he goes on alone. From a hiding place, the girls watch as Aslan goes back up to the stone table where the witch and her followers wait for him. They tie him up. They shave him. Uh, they mock him. They spit on him, and they beat him. And then the witch stabs him with a knife. Uh, chapter 15, Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. Uh, the bad monsters leave. The girls go down to see Aslan. Some mice come and chew through the ropes. The girls try to walk uh, around a bit to stay warm. And then they hear a great crack, and the stone table is split in two. Then Aslan appears with a full mane and a full of energy and power. The girls are very glad to see him. Uh, and then he has them ride on his back, and he rushes to the witch's castle. Chapter 16, What Happened About the Statues. Aslan breathes on all the statues, the witch's enemies, uh, the, the, the statues are the witch's enemies that she had turned into stone. And they all come to life. And even Mr. Tumnus is there and he's made well. And then they rush to the battle and uh, Peter and Edmund and the, and the others are fighting the witch and Aslan uh, jumps and pounces on her and he kills her. And then uh, chapter 17 is called The Hunting of the White Stag. So they all go to Care Paravel. Aslan makes them kings and queens and then he quietly leaves. And they all grow up in Narnia and become adults. And then one day they go hunting a white stag in the forest and they follow it for a while and it leads them into a thick wood and they dismount and follow it further. And then the woods turn into coats and they tumble out of the wardrobe and they're children again. No time has passed. They tell the professor, uh, he believes them and tells them they will get back to Narnia someday, but it will happen when they aren't expecting it. The end. Well done. Short and sweet. Yeah, it's, I mean, this was written as a children's book, and it's pretty straightforward in the narrative structure, which those are always easier to summarize. <laughs> yes. Um. So, have you ever had Turkish Delight? I never have. I had it, um, we had a class presentation in college. The class was about um, Tolkien in literature and film, but there were class presentations on other classic novels that had been adapted to film. I don't know. And someone did this, and they brought in Turkish Delight. And I have to say, a bit disappointing. The witch must have done something really special really? To, <laughs> to what she served Edmund. So tell me about Turkish Delight. It, it just uh, reminded me more, kind of as a gelatin more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it just was like, yeah, it's, it's there. I would never seek it out again in my life, I don't think. It's a family of confections based on a gel of starch and sugar. <laughs> So you're saying you wouldn't betray your siblings for a few more Turkish delights. I'm not saying I wouldn't betray my siblings. I am saying I wouldn't do it for Turkish delight. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, maybe the witch was following the recipe, this recipe that I just found on Epicurious that's called non-evil Turkish delight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she'd be going with evil, don't you? Well. And that's kind of her, her dick. Is. Yeah. I mean, she's not even hiding her evilness, really, for most of this. 
I guess she does try and trick Edmund to think everyone else says I'm evil, but I'm not. But the second he sees her again, she's like, oh, I'm evil. You, you totally misread the situation. (laughs) Yeah, Edmund, poor Edmund. He really, (laughs) he is a grade A bozo. (laughs) He really really is. Um, And I've got to, like, in this book with, um, that has all the supernatural stuff, and you've got an evil queen who's made an endless winter without any Christmas, which you have to say would be, for a kid, a pretty evil thing uh, to do. Um, Edmund, when he goes into Narnia and comes out and then tells us his, his uh, Peter and Susan, like, no, she made it all up. That is, like, the biggest betrayal I think kids feel yes. <laughs> in this novel. And the moment are like, most evil, like, how dare you? How dare you do that, Edmund? <laughs> it really is a jerk move. I think it's interesting at the very end of the – towards the end of the book. Um, how what's going on? Oh, it's at the, at the end of the battle and, uh, and Edmund has been injured. And so Lucy runs and she saves him. And then Ed, uh, Aslan says, Lucy, there's a whole bunch of other people that need you. And she says, I know, I'll be there in a minute. And he's like, uh, Lucy, you have a magic potion. You should go and save all these people. And she says, I'm really sorry. Um, and then they're wondering if they should tell Edmund about that Aslan um, gave his life to save him. And it says it says this um when at last she was free to come back to edmund she found him standing on his feet and not only healed of his wounds but looking better than she had seen him look oh for ages in fact ever since his first term at that horrid school which was where he had begun to go wrong he had become his real old self again and could look you in the face and there on the field of battle aslan made him a knight so there's that and then there's this other one that talks about how they ruled uh, as kings and queens and it says and they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarves and young santers from being sent to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live and like that's <laughs> that's um lewis's definition of like the good life don't let kids go to school <laughs> cuz it's just going to ruin them uh which i thought was interesting uh, especially because he was a teacher, wasn't he? <laughs> For part of his career. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of true. Like, kids can get, kids can get crazy ideas. Um, when my, whenever my kids do something bad, uh, my wife will say, who taught you that? And I'll be like, they're kids. They learn it from, like, everyone and no one. <laughs> like, they just, they go to school. There's a bunch of horrible people there. And, they're horrible because they're kids and kids are horrible. They're awesome, but they're also terrible and they do terrible things. And, uh, and sometimes awesome when to each other, yeah, really, <laughs> really. Um, I've been writing, uh, about being childlike and it's really kind of a, kind of a complicated thing because children can be really horrible. <laughs> and Edmund, uh, Edmund is, is the proof. He is, <laughs> he is rotten, man. And it's all because he went to that school. If we just never sent our kids to school, they'd never turn into horrible monsters like Edmund. The other part of that quote that you read that stuck out to me is the first thing he said was about the trees, right? What does it say about the trees exactly? Yeah, so they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarves and young satires from being sent to school. So around the same time, we have Lewis um, as part of the Inklings, which includes J.R.R. Tolkien. And in Lord of the Rings, like cutting down trees is also like a really big bad thing. It really what? is. What's going on? 
in England during the war years? Did they cut down lots of trees? I don't know, like the history of trees in England. But it seems yeah. like this was something that was pretty scarring for both of them. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. I'm sure there's a. I'm sure there's a good answer to this. I mean, I'm not f- promoting the unnecessary destruction of trees. And when I raise this question, it just seems like it's an odd theme to find in both Chronicles of Narnia and and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, there's probably a really simple answer, which is like there was somebody that was cutting down a bunch of trees in England. And so they were really mad about it. But (laughs) um, I I wonder if part of it has to do with like the destruction of war and um, and industrialization. And there's also kind of a a um, like an archetypal thing about nature and um, and like uh, machinery and industrialization, and they 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 seem to fit well into these categories of like conscious subconscious, like Jungian kind of archetypal categories, and uh, trees would be like really closely associated with the magical fantasy world and so cutting them down would be like not great <laughs> so I, I mean i think that there may be symbolic reasons for it but the, it, it's also entirely possible that they were just like they love nature and they hated seeing the trees cut down oh wait okay. for, I am for looking... what for whatever reason I'm, I'm looking on wikipedia and there's a graph and the uh the percentage of woodland in comparison to the total land area in England was at its all time low in about the 1920s or thirties really? or so. I, yeah. I've got a little information on it, that. That's Let its me... lowest. It, it dipped below 5% and then it spikes back up. So they certainly made an effort and it could possibly be a result of some of these writings. Well, interesting. Okay. Forestry.gov.uk is what I'm looking at. And there's a timeline of the history of the forestry commission. And it mentions that in the 1930s, Let's see. The commission began working to drop detailed plans for felling in the event of war to maintain a home timber supply, because uh, obviously supply chains right. break down. And the first, uh, the trees that could be felled immediately were mature stands, and then woods that would be felled if necessary were slightly younger uh, trees, and woods to be felled only in the extreme. Uh, and it mentions that. Uh, in the 1940s, because they were the most mature, the Forest of Dean and the New Forest bore the brunt of wartime felling with almost all conifers uh, in the New Forest cut. So, like, uh, tens of thousands of acres of trees were just gone, oh, basically, during the war. So, I think this may be something um, onto it. And once the war was over, Andrew, restoring the forest mm-hmm. became a priority for the, for the Forest Bank Commission. So, they, they're hoping to get it to, like, 12 or 13% by, like, 2060. Cool. Up, so up that's, from the uh, low of about five percent. Some quick uh, recess of our mind research brought that all to the front. To about go. deforestation in England. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew that that was where we we were going to land on this? Uh, if if even briefly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we mentioned uh, Edmund, kind of a punk, uh, and has again in the world with a Snow Queen uh, is considered. A, one of the most evil acts is him lying to his siblings about his younger sister telling the truth. Should we, uh, well, I it's mean, just such a, it's just such a jerk move, right? Like he was <laughs> really? there. He was in Narnia. 
it still galls even as an adult. Like for kids, I think it's an even bigger betrayal. But I, I listened to an audiobook version uh, for this, uh, most of it today, in preparation for this recording. And it came to that moment. And I was like, oh, I forgot how much it bothered me that he does that. And so like the like one, it's lying. And so you'd be upset for him lying. But two, it's lying. And the only purpose that's served by lying is to discredit his sister. Yeah. And so it's just it's just it's it's like two bad things all at once is like lying, which is not good. And two, just hurting your sister for no good reason. What does he gain by that lie? Well, and it, it, like not only discrediting his sister, but his sister knows the truth and knows that he's lying, and she knows the older siblings are going to believe him and not her. Which so I don't know why they would, because he's her. been a jerk before. Well, there's the, the conversation with the professor kind of takes care of that. The professor is savvy. Yeah, but even still, I mean, imagine that you're Peter and Susan, and they say, "Yeah, I like went," and then there's this magic world, like. It's not entirely um, crazy of Peter and Susan to not believe Lucy when she says that she went in, especially when they go and they knock on the back and there's nothing there. So I just I don't I don't get what Edmund gets out of this lie. Yeah, like, everybody I, he, already hates him. And yeah, they like hate he's him not more. improving his reputation. Yeah, he's just being a jerk. But, it's just like also, he just wants to do of, inflict as much damage as he can. It feels like yes, exactly. When you, when you at that age as a child, if you feel like you're on the the out, you you know you are the outcast. You're not going to do. You, you have a, a slash and burn mentality. <laughs> it's like if, if, if they're not going to like me, then I'm going to take everyone down. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to earn my disliked status. But he was in Narnia, like. <laughs> If you went into a magical world, wouldn't you want to tell somebody? I don't know. Maybe I've got some not, secrets. Not, not if you've got the <laughs> chance to tear someone else down. I know. It's like just... You can make someone else hurt. Oh, it's so it's so revealing about him. I know that it's like it's in human nature to do that uh, at times. I, I think you're spot on that when you're on the outs with people, then you just like, who cares? But but I also think it's interesting. It's um like when my daughter uh, read the fifth Harry Potter, um like the thing that bugs her isn't Voldemort or the Death Eaters or any of that. It is um, Umbridge not believing Harry. Yeah, <laughs> like that is the worst. <laughs> it's like she knows she has to know, and she's still punishing him for telling the truth. Um, And I I think that kind of violation of trust, it really resonates with kids. And again, like it's still, I think Edmund's a jerk. (laughs) I can totally Uh, tell with my kids. Like, (laughs) you know how sometimes you can kind of tell if they're, they're, uh, or sometimes, let me say this again. It seems sometimes that your kids might be telling the truth or they, they may, might be lying. But if you call them out on it and you tell them that you think they're lying and they're really telling the truth my kids like they just come to pieces yeah, <laughs> and it's like so clear like, like okay i totally believe oh, you because oh, right. this is legit <laughs> like you're you're expressing to yeah. me how how sad you are about the injustice of the situation completely convinces me that yes. you were telling the truth and i'm sorry like um i can't remember a specific example but i know like something was broken in the house and all the signs point to my daughter and i say did you do this and she she says no and i'm like and then, like, the tears come, like, oh, okay, you really didn't yeah. do that. Because <laughs> if you were, you were lying, it would be, oh, I don't know, daddy. Right. 
Yeah, that's I mean, that's real tears. And that's a, that's about as sad as I can see my kids is when they feel like there's an, an injustice being done against them. And <laughs> it, I think it just stays with us, right? We're all still little kids and grown up bodies. And we hate to see that kind of stuff. So Edmund, I, I'm okay, really glad he that he also comes around. Has the biggest arc of all the characters, right? Oh, yeah. He, he has the redemption story. Uh-huh. Because um, he screws up bad enough to need redemption, <laughs> like Peter, a little bit of a jerk, but not bad enough to like need someone to go die for him. Hmm. Level of jerkdom, uh, and so he he has the most transformation um, of of the siblings, um, and I think he also kind of like he he stands out the most, maybe because of that. Like if I'm trying to remember like the traits of each character, like my first go to reaction is well, Edmund was the jerk, right? Yeah, it, for uh, me, it's Edmund Edmund was- and Lucy are the two like really great. <laughs> of the of the yeah. of the four siblings and and then peter has a bit of personality because he's got a little edge in his, how he talks to edmund but then i'm sorry susan i don't know much about you after reading this book yeah i agree i mean so we see her um like her, her sensitivity to aslan's situation yes um, and but in some ways that doesn't feel earned for her the way it does for Lucy. Like it's of course Lucy is yeah. the one that's going to be to go do this. And Susan, it's like, well, because of the allegory, we need two women to <laughs> come and care for the body. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Susan, um, in some ways, kind of is a placeholder. Uh, she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't do a lot of um, work in the plot. <laughs> Uh, but but Lucy does, and yes. I think Lucy's great. So let's but talk I, about Lucy a little. Well, I, I, can we just finish talking about Edmund's arc? Yeah, because I think it's really, um, I think it's important the way that it happens. Um, in that he, so we see him as jerk, and then we see uh, him offered all this Turkish delight. <laughs> And and, uh, and the promise of a kingdom that was never going to come to him. Right. And um, I love to see like Ed- Edmund go through his realization that this is not really turning out how it how he imagined. And it's very early that he's he's pretty sure that she's bad. <laughs> but again, it's this like willful. Um, it's uh, rebellion, right? Um, and then to see him brought low, like he becomes very, very humble. Um, There's one way that um, just like at that moment where you said he he like knows, oh, this isn't going to go the way I thought. There's something that C.S. Lewis wrote. and I cannot remember the exact quote, but it was like, like all people who know they've made a bad choice, but want to defend it. He convinced himself uh, like he lied to himself, basically, yeah. uh, and, and tried to believe the lie for as long as he could before there was no other choice. And. Lucius said it more eloquently, but I thought that was another good insight into human nature. Yeah. Which, uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis is, if he's not known for Chronicles and Arnia, he's also known for... Insights into human nature. Insights into human nature, uh, be it through the Screwtape Letters or some of his essays, like The Trouble with X is a really great essay about human nature. Um, And I I thought that was, you know, something that I think we've all done where we've, like, we know, oh, this wasn't the right choice, be it... Um, in terms of something we're going to do or, you know, something we're going to believe for a while. And then we realize, oh, that was, that was the right thing to believe in. Uh, or, you know, someone we're going to be friends with. And, and yet we don't want to admit that we've made the wrong choice. So we're going to play along for as long as we can 
but often we do reach the breaking point. Maybe not because, um, you know, a, a white witch is going to chain us to a tree and kill us, <laughs> but because, uh, you know, just reality sets in and at a certain point we can't believe our own lies or most of us can't believe our own lies. I think there are probably some people out there who can believe their own lies for a very long time mm-hmm. <laughs> from, from what I've seen. Uh, but I, I think that transition point for Edmund, um, it's, it's key that it got included where not only uh, like as readers, we see he knows he's made the wrong choice, but we also can see and understand why he's not quite willing to, to admit that yet. Yeah. And it's uh, the, uh, uh, another key moment for Edmund is when he sees the animals get turned into stone. And, uh, and it says Edmund for the first time in the story felt sorry for someone besides himself. And that's like, <laughs> it's a really key moment. He's so self-centered through the whole beginning of this story. And at that point he changes. And then when he gets back to Aslan, like everything made good really quickly. <laughs> and then Aslan comes back and says, I've talked to him. We're, we're cool. There's nothing that needs to be said. And then they all like, okay, uh, sorry. And he says, yeah, I'm sorry. And they're like, okay, <laughs> then they just move on. And, and very quickly after that, he, he becomes the hero. He's the one who breaks the, the queen's wand. Uh, so it really is, a a remarkable um, change in him. He has a real arc where uh, a lot of the other ones uh, don't. Maybe none of the other ones do. So uh, Lucy, we can talk about Lucy now. She's she's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, except for maybe a little too trusting at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> like she's so trusting of, uh, is it Tubness? Is that getting the yes, name right? Tubness. Which I love. The, is it James McAvoy who plays Tumnus in the film? It version? is. Yeah, it's this young. He is so great as, in that role. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I, I, I was shocked like when I saw it. it again after. I mean, it was like probably this year. And I've seen this movie after a lot of times. <laughs> or, yeah. Or Professor X in the new new X-Men films. Yeah. Oh, um, he's Tumnus. Yeah, there's Tumnus. Um, but she's so trusting of him. It makes me wonder if she had met the white witch first <laughs> like would she have believed the story that she weaves the same way that Edmund does I really don't think she would have I don't like she's so pure and innocent that you don't think she would I don't think she'd be manipulated into something but if the white uh queen had said I'm the good guy would she just believe that no I don't think like, she would have manipulating her no what would have tipped her off uh, uh instinct she has a spidey <laughs> sense about the nature of people <laughs> Well, they have this, they, um, when they, when they are, they go to Tumnus's house, his house has been all busted up and then they see the Robin and, and Peter and Susan are like, Oh, I don't know if we should really do this. Um, and is it Lucy, the one that says, let's just follow the Robin because I'm sure it's good. Oh, they say it's Robins are always good in all the stories. They're, um. Uh, whereas I found it. Okay, so uh, hush, not so loud, says Edmund. There's no good frightening the girls. Uh, Peter says what? Uh, oh, it's um, it's Peter who says they're good birds in all the stories I've read. I'm sure Robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. But I, I don't know. I just have a sense that Lucy would be, um, that she'd be on to the White Witch. I feel like the White Witch is able to have the power over Edmund that she has because he's rotten. <laughs> and she knows how to play on that. And I I just don't 
think that she would. I don't think she has the penchant for gluttony that that Edmund seems no. to have. <laughs> no. I think maybe she she's able to play Edmund so well because she understands him. I mean, like I think there are similarities between the the white witch and early Edmund in the story. But Lucy's just good. Like she's she's goodness and there's never any indication that she would that she, that she would go along with the white witch. So I I don't think she would I I don't think she would have I'm sure she would have been captured and probably um, she'd be a statue <laughs> yeah, she, in the courtyard. <laughs> she could be. Um, yeah. I just, I love Lucy's goodness and, um, and, and she's the, she's the impetus for the whole story is her going into the wardrobe. It's Peter is the initial one who says, let's go exploring. But his, his idea of exploring is, you know, like let's roam around the house. Lucy takes it to another level. <laughs> uh which is which is really cool. Um I guess this also raises the question what is, is she the key to the wardrobe cuz the only time other people enter is when she is there as well, right? Yeah. It seems like it. She's the youngest. She's probably the most innocent, the most willing to believe. So, yeah, I mean I I don't there, know. There's I, nothing I, in any of the stories that explain the mechanics of this doorway to Narnia. Right. It just is there, and sometimes it's not, as far as we see. But every time that it does work, she goes by herself, she goes, and Edmund follows her, and then she goes, and everyone follows her. Right, but when she does go after, right after she comes out of the wardrobe the first time, she tries to go back, and she can't. So That's it's right. not like it's always open for her, but it is true that the only times that we see it open, she is there. What's going on with this wardrobe? I don't know. What, it's such an odd name for a, a book, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's uh, you have your goodness in the Lion and uh -huh. evil. So good and evil, and then there's the wardrobe. What, like, what is, what is this? Well, the wardrobe is the is the doorway. It's the portal that that takes you into that world where there's good and evil. It's I the mean, threshold. Good and evil. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The threshold. So it's it's key to the structure of the story. Yeah, it's, it's it's still it seems like oddly prominent in the title. It's like the belly of, you know, the belly of the whale or something mm -hmm. like that world is important. Star Wars. It's a war in the stars. And the wardrobe <laughs> is the door that takes us into into that other world. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's crazy that he that he uses the wardrobe. It, 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 he calls the whole series Chronicles of Narnia. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think those two elements are important. You have the light and the dark and the doorway. Uh, not necessarily between those two things, but um, but it's it's really important. The, the wardrobe is really important in the story. And it works. And threes are great. It is. I mean, we have good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Other. <laughs> I guess the wardrobe's the ugly in this version. Yeah. So I love uh, I love Lucy. I don't see a huge arc for Lucy. No, I mean she's she's goodness incarnate at the beginning. She's entirely trusting. She's uh, at the end like she becomes more nurturing. I guess would be the thing because she's the healer by uh -huh. the end. Uh, so so maybe it's like an expansion of her role more so than a transformation of her role. Is it um, Lucy so I, in the I, end I, who wants to push forward and get to the stag, or is it Susan? I feel like it's one of one of the yeah, it's Lucy. So. When they're in the forest and they're chasing the stag, 
uh, Susan wants to go back. They all have this sense of uh, foreboding. And uh, Queen Susan says, "My counsel, uh, by my counsel, we shall lightly return to our horses and follow this white stag no further. And Lucy says, my royal brother speaks rightly. It seems to me we should be shamed if for any fear, fearing or foreboding, we turn back from following so noble a beast as now we have in chase. And then uh, Edmund says, me too. And Peter's like, let's go get it. And Susan's like, okay. <laughs> Good old Susan. It's She's Susan. There. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they try to do more with Susan in the in the film, in the this newest film. And um, there's something about Peter's relationship with her that I don't like. It's my least favorite thing about the film is the way that, that Peter treats Susan. Um and like she's trying to be bossy and he's trying to be bossy. And there's like this power struggle between them at the top that I just don't see in the book at all. Um, and I guess, you know, it's good to try. I, I, you have to try to give her something to do. Uh, but in the in the end, um, they, I just <laughs> it's not the strongest part of this novel. Susan, Susan is not the strongest uh, piece in the puzzle. The only thing I remember her doing is climbing a tree and then almost fainting out of the tree. So Peter had to save her. <laughs> She blows on the horn and she's yeah. with, I mean, she does have she that walk with Lucy. Yeah. A beautiful scene. And, and I think that's really beautiful. And it's, it's the thing that stands out certainly in my, in my own mind, as I think, I think as far as the prose and the storytelling, that is the strongest part of the book. Yeah. Is that sequence. Yeah. Um, it feels like, I mean, this is C.S. Lewis. He's a beloved author. I'm not trying to knock it, but that felt like the strongest writing in the book was that section when they follow Aslan out and he gets sacrificed. I mean, not crucified, but sacrificed. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a poorly written passage in the book, uh, but it it seems like he's um, like like he's dialed in in that section. <laughs> In a way that, like and the others, it's just a, such a straightforward narrative that's written so that anybody can understand it. Yeah, it feels like there's more investment in the the mm -hmm. sacrifice sequence. Yeah, which is not surprising. Yes. <laughs> Again, we're talking about C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, he enjoyed his his Christian themes. Yes. Uh, so let's see, Lucy. I, I I don't know that I have a whole lot, though. It is interesting that you spotted that she bookends. Like she's the reason they come in. She's the reason they go out. Yeah. Um, in the series so uh well done c.s lewis you know what you're doing uh <laughs> turns out you know how to write a story yes uh peter i i mean the only thing is he is a little like he he puts edmund in his place a bit but maybe too much and that drives edmund away but other than that there's not um a ton he because the story leaves peter at the moment that he'd be shining i think if we were following his narrative because he's leading mm. the battle when aslan and his forces come back and it seems like he's, you know, he's one on one against the white. So, so like his his best moments of like rising to leadership and, um, you know, rallying the troops. You know, if he gave a St. Christmas Day speech right before this happened, we don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> he gave uh, the Braveheart speech. Yes. Uh, the, the story leaves. And I mean, the, the story jumps point of view a few times, but it never really jumps chronology. Like right. if it's over with Edmund. There's adventures happening with Lucy and having tea. You know, she she's over there doing that, and or uh, and, and then it comes back. Um, and so when Aslan is freeing all the people who are turned into statues, all the animals and the giants and everything, Peter is doing something heroic over here. We just kind of walk in at the very end of it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, like if <laughs> if you had to choose between 
describing this awesome battle between Peter and Edmund and the forces of good against the the White Witch and the and the forces of evil, and Aslan blowing on a bunch of statues and turning them to life, and then this giant knocking down the thing. Like it seems like the other one would be way more interesting, and I love uh, that about the about the new movie. I love the way that they that they um, they show the battle, uh, but Lewis just doesn't seem really interested in that. <laughs> It might have been an inkling thing, because if you think back to our very first book we covered, another of the inklings, this group of writers, J.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit, um, the Battle of the Five Armies, he just skips over having to write it. He falls asleep. (laughs) He gets knocked out or something. Yeah, he's unconscious. I think it was. uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bilbo is knocked unconscious. And then he wakes up and he says, oh, there was a giant war between the five armies. And our side won. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's what we get, and here it's like, oh, there's a giant war between the forces of evil and the forces of good, and Aslan's going to come in literally as a Deus Ex Machina at the very end. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's an appropriate term in this instance uh, to to uh, wrap up the battle. Um, but uh, it's it's like a Deus Ex Machina coming in to save the day when we have not seen the day in peril, right? But I think it I think it tells us where uh, Lewis's priorities were which is in this story of redemption and um, like being uh, being saved. I mean, there, there is, as he goes, I love his description of uh, when he blows on the statue and then he says, it's like when you light a piece of newspaper on fire and it comes like, I feel like he's, he's again, like he's kind of dialed in there with, with his descriptions of things. Um, and that's the story that he wants to tell is how he brings all of this stone back to life. Um, in the end, the battle is won really simply. He just pounces on her and eats her and then she's dead. <laughs> um, so, and, and Edmund has a great moment there where he, we are told that he went and, uh, and was the one who, who broke the, the queen's wand. Uh, and Edmund, I mean, Peter, I think, the thing that stands out in my mind with Peter is like walking with Aslan and Aslan going over the plans for the battle with him. And there is some training that goes, uh, that goes into Peter there um, to help him grow up. But he's, he's like pretty grown up even at the beginning. He just needs a little nudge in the right direction. And then he's there. Uh, Edmund is the one that really is struggling. Maybe Peter didn't go to the same school that Edmund went to all those horrible people maybe edmund went to the school of sing street sing that street. kid yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was with you on that i saw i saw where you were heading you saw that one coming. <laughs> only because when you were talking about horrible schools earlier i almost mentioned the sing street school <laughs> it's right it really stands out as one of the worst in all of the stories that we've read and we've read about some bad schools but that one's that one's really it's bad I mean, as, as magical as Hogwarts is, it has its own issues, too. If we're talking about some bad schools. Yeah. Shockingly high mortality rate. Um, that's true. That's true. For, for students. And uh, and I'm not sure I, uh, in retrospect, uh, think Dumbledore did, made some of the best choices as headmaster. Like, yeah. I, I kind of understand the Slytherin point of view. <laughs> like, they kind of get screwed over a few times. Yeah, that's true. All right. Uh, any anything else? Uh, we talked about all the main characters, right? You want to talk mm-hmm. about Aslan at all? Um, uh, 
it's really hard for me, and, and maybe this is where you want we, we wanted this conversation to end up as we we put a pin in this earlier. But it is really hard for me to separate um, the the Christian religious uh, symbolism of this story from just the fact that it's it's a great story, and I think that's why I like Neil Gaiman's take on this so much because uh, it really is a great story. <laughs> um, but it's always had a really uh, special place for me because of what Aslan symbolizes and um, the passages where it describes him. Uh, they just, they have great personal significance to me. Yeah. I, I can't remember where this was. I was listening to a great courses audio uh, thing and I, I, so I can't remember what professor it was, but he said, just real quick, I want to distinguish symbol and metaphor Symbol has no function other than its symbolic meaning. Like that is it. Mm -hmm. uh, metaphor has to function on its own, but also have deeper meaning. And particularly like Aslan in the story, it's really riding the line of like, is this just symbol? <laughs> or is this like yeah. a fully functioning metaphor that you can take as a functioning on its own within the story? Um, or is it simply a symbol of Christ? Right. Um, and it's really writing the line in how explicit the the symbolism becomes not the metaphor but the symbolism uh you know the direct uh one to one correlations that you get between aslan and christ that it, it becomes hard like you um, like what you were just saying for me to like step back and say this is functioning as a story or is this just a symbolic telling of Christ at certain moments. Uh, but at the same time, like we said, like the, the writing gets heightened in those moments. And maybe that's why I'm going to give it a pass and say, I think, I think it can work on its own that anyone could read this for a story of redemption and try and, you know, just enjoy it as the story that is being told and not be concerned about the issues of, or, or you know, the layers of meaning that can come in with C.S. Lewis's interpretation of Christianity and Christianity in general in this world and, the, you know, all these other things. Um, but it certainly, I mean, it functions as that symbolism. But I think, you know, like you said, you appreciate Neil Gaiman's statement. Like when you, you can come back to it and just say, this is just a good story as well. Yeah. And I think that the older that I've, that I, that I've become and the more that I read about um, just myth and archetype and, uh, and, and symbolism in general, um, religious history, like Eliade writing about uh, these lines that you can draw between lots and lots of different religions. Um, one of the things that makes Christianity so potent is because it uh, it follows those mythical archetypal lines so closely, and. So, you know, people there, I know there are people that would say that Christianity is just cribbing off of, you know, solar worship or whatever. Um, and in the end, you know, there, there's a, maybe a debate to be had about which comes first, but there's no denying the fact that Christianity follows uh, these archetypal patterns really, really well. And so if you're Christian and you read it, you go, yeah, that's, that's Christ. Like it can't not be. <laughs> Um, and if you are familiar with like the Judeo-Christian tradition and that's all you're familiar with, then you look at it and you go like Neil Gaiman did when he was a young man, uh, or a, a boy and, and, and struggling with the, uh, I don't know, faith and religion and stuff and saying, this is, this is dumb. Cause it's just the story, this Christian story that I've been told and that I know is not true. Uh, but if you are able to take a step back and look at just 
the the pattern that occurs throughout cultures and throughout history um then you can see like oh okay <laughs> this is this is tapping into something that is uh, way more than just a, a bible story that's told uh with kids and a lion um it's it's telling maybe the most important story that humans have told each other for forever to help us uh, get some meaning out of life and really to help us answer this question that everybody wants to know the answer to, which is, can I be forgiven for being a monster? Cause I am, and we all are and everybody recognizes it and everybody wants to feel better about it. I think, I think it's one of the, one of the main uh, threads that runs through all of civilization is this desire for redemption. And when you see it like that, then then it, it becomes more than just a Christian metaphor symbol. I'm just going to co-sign on what you've said. I don't think I can up it. <laughs> Not going to improve upon that that statement. Uh, so I, I think that's probably going to be uh, my final statement on, uh, on Chronicles of Narnia because I'm co-signing yours. Do you have anything else you want to make sure we get in? No, I think I've said my piece. All right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 89, when we talked about another C.S. Lewis story, Till We Have Faces. Very different. Very different. But... <laughs> yeah. So much to get out of that one as well. I really am glad. I can't remember what patron asked us to do till we have faces, but it was such a great choice. Yeah. Uh, and episode number 192, when we talked about Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, who came up a few times in this episode. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to stop by and say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Go for it. Alright, I'm gonna go without Garage Band. I'm just gonna act in faith. Yeah. Okay. Alright.